So we are going through the, uh, really, the only prophetical chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Now that's not saying that there hasn't been other prophecy that uh, Luke hasn't covered in his gospel, but as far as an intense uh, look at future events, Luke chapter 21, as far as the gospel of Luke is concerned, that is our chapter. It is a prophetical chapter, and we've been going through this uh, chapter. If you remember, I've had a couple of timelines that I put up on the whiteboard uh, trying to work all of this uh, out that Jesus is talking about here, and Jesus is now coming to a close in his answering the questions asked by his disciples about the temple and about its destruction and uh, what they are to look for uh, as far as that is all, all that is concerned. And so uh, he's, he's giving them the outline, if you will, the prophetic outline of what is uh, coming about, what is taking place. And uh, as we are getting toward the end, uh, what he does here now is he's giving those folks that he's saying watch and pray for these things what he's doing here and what we're getting ready to look at as far as the sign of the fig tree is a major sign for us to be looking for Okay, I know there's a lot of people out there saying it's a sign of the times this is going on, a sign of the times that that's going on. But the, the chief sign that Jesus gives is what we're getting ready to study about, and that's the sign of the fig tree. So before we get into it, let's uh, have a word of prayer. And then uh, we'll start uh, trying. Uh, we'll start breaking this down. Uh, Lord God in heaven, we come to you, Father, and uh, we're so very, very grateful that uh, we know you through your Son Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Lord, that uh, because of Christ Jesus, we have uh, an eternal hope, an everlasting inheritance. We know, Father in heaven, that our home is not here on earth, but it is with you in heaven. And we thank you so much, Lord, for the uh, hope that you've given us and for the bright future that is before us. And, Father, as we look out upon the world and we see all of these things going on, Father, uh, it's it's a wonder that people's heart uh, people's hearts are failing them for fear of the things that are coming up about but lord god we know that we have uh, assurance in you that father in heaven help us that we would be brave in the face of these situations knowing that uh, soon uh, we will be joined with you in the air we thank you and we praise you in christ's name Amen. So like I said, he's getting ready to close out this narrative about um, um, the end times. And I say that because if you look at Luke 21, 36, um, actually uh, Luke 21, uh, 27, he says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So the whole context of this chapter is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's why I'm saying these are, these are signs of the, of the end times. And I believe that, um, I use the analogy of a flight number being called. I think in one of our lessons, you know what, folks? I think our flight number is going to be called here pretty soon. I really do. Um, but, uh, that's just, that's just my thinking about it. And, uh, as I, as we learned in our last lesson, this is what is meant by our redemption, your redemption draweth nigh. 
uh, uh, there. He says in uh, verse 36, uh, as far as in the context of the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, we who are worthy to escape all of these things that shall come to pass, we're going to be whisked out of here. The rapture of the church is going to happen, and we're going to be whisked right out of here. So in other words, what he's saying is, um, as you see these things lining up in the queue, as far as the events on this earth is talking about, then you be listening. You be listening for that voice of the archangel that Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians in 4.16. And you, we're going to be changed in a twinkling of an eye. It's going to be so quick. We're going to shed these immortal bodies and we're going to take on immortal bodies. And in a twinkling of eye, according to 1 Corinthians 52, 15 verses, uh, verse 52. And we'll be with the Lord uh, in, in the air. And that's what's meant by this word redemption. In the context text of this passage. It means to be rescued from danger. That's what it means. It's not talking about your salvation of your soul. It's talking about being rescued from danger. It means being delivered from a, a peril, uh, something that is threatening. And what we're going to escape is we're going to escape all these things uh, that he's talking about here. If you remember, I, on one of my timelines, uh, I talked about the fullness of the Gentiles. And do you remember what I told you what the fullness of the Gentiles was? Yeah, that's when that last... Gentile believer will receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. Who that is, when that will happen, where that that will happen, I don't know. But when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, when that last Gentile believer receives Jesus Christ as his Savior, I believe that's when the bridegroom's going to come for his bride and take her home to be with him. All right, And when that happens, then everything that Jesus is talking about here will begin to start rolling in like a, a bad thunderstorm in the summertime. Okay, That's when things are going to start rolling in. And that's when, like he says in verse 27, then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. Don't miss that. They will see it. The church won't see it because you know why? Because we'll be with him when he comes the second time. All right? So they on earth who are experiencing all of these things that he's talking about here in in Luke chapter 21, they're going to see him coming and they're going to see us with him as well. Okay? All right. I get a lot of blank looks, but that's okay. That's okay. So, in closing this discourse out, Jesus finishes it with two things. He gives us a sign to look for, and he gives us a warning or an admonition. All right? A sign to look for, and a warning and an admonition. So, we're going to look at the sign first. Luke 21, 29 And he spake to them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. 
Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Um, the simplest definition that I've heard about a parable is simply it, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Okay, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus often employed parables, okay? Uh, when he was trying to teach a principle or if he was trying to uh, accentuate a doctrine, he would use a parable. I mean, we're all familiar with the parable of the sower and the seed, right? And then later on, he kind of explains what the soils were and what the seed represented as far as the word of God is concerned. So we're, you know, we're familiar with that. Another parable he used when he was talking to his disciples and he was telling his disciples to beware of the doctrine of the Pharisees, which was hypocrisy. And what did he call this doctrine? He referred to it as... Leaven, right? Leaven is something that uh, kind of corrupts. It's, 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 a, it's, it has a, a, an influence. It spreads. So, so it, he used that to illustrate this, uh, this idea about the Pharisees' doctrine. It's bad doctrine. You don't want anything to do with it. Well, the use of trees in the Bible is another one of those earthly illustrations uh, that describes a, a heavenly truth, a doctrine, a principle, a scriptural truth. And the Bible is full of these, these, the symbolism in regards to trees. It's full of symbolism in regards to trees. It could refer to uh, men or man, a single individual, individuals or men collectively. It even can, uh, talk about nations. Uh, the Bible talks about nations and it uses uh, trees. Some examples, like in uh, Psalms 1-3, talking about the godly, it says, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So there you see a godly man is compared to what? A tree that is flourishing, right? That it flourishes. Another instance is found in Judges chapter 9, 7 through 21, when Jotham, who was the youngest son of Gideon, uh, was uh, uh, preaching against his older brother Abimelech. And Abimelech had killed off all the other sons of Gideon because Abimelech wanted to be king. So Jotham gave this parable of this sermon about the thistle going to the trees and wanting to be king. All right, so he used that analogy of of, of a tree uh, with his uh, murderous older brother, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter five. He had a dream of a great tree that was cut down and was banded with iron. But the roots were left in the ground, and then for like seven years, this stump stayed there, and then after seven years, it, it sprouted up again. Well, that was Nebuchadnezzar. That was a dream that God had given to Nebuchadnezzar because of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. God was going to judge the man, and so for seven years, he was insane. So that tree in, in Daniel chapter 5 was about a specific man, which was Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, if you uh, look at Ezekiel, you don't have to, I'm just saying. If you refer to Ezekiel chapter 31, verse 3, uh, the prophet Ezekiel uh, likens the nation of Assyria to a cedar tree. 
So you see in the Bible we have these trees that are used to represent men or a man or individuals or nations or peoples. Uh, one more example, just to, you know, to give you two or three witnesses to establish the matter. In Psalms chapter 37 and, thir- and verse 35, the psalmist writes, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. All right? So here they are, they prosper on the earth like a green bay tree. So there we have that use of the tree uh, to represent something. To represent something in the Bible. Now, when we come to Israel, Israel is likened to three types of trees. Uh, Israel is likened to a vine tree, and yes, that's what the Bible calls it, an olive tree, and a fig tree. In Habakkuk uh, chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, he writes, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk is talking about his people Israel. And he uses all three trees in this lamentation over Israel because Israel is getting ready to be judged they're getting ready to be judged for their uh, falling away from the Lord falling away uh, uh, from God and, and, and worshiping other gods now as you go through the word of God and you, you, know, you cross reference and you check all these things dealing with the vine and the olive and the fig tree um, what you're going to come to understand is that the vine tree uh, represents uh, what I call Israel's spiritual heart attitude. Israel's spiritual heart attitude uh, toward toward God, uh, toward God. Uh, Psalms 80, uh, verses 7 through 8, we hear the, the psalmist uh, praying in humility and repentance. He says, uh, Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. He's speaking of his people. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. So we're seeing here uh, this psalmist speaking on the behalf of his people Israel and there's that spiritual heart attitude of repentance that spiritual heart attitude of of humility uh, toward God. Again in Isaiah chapter 5 we see the same imagery in Isaiah chapter 5 starting in verse 3. He says and now O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah judge I pray you betwixt me and my vineyard what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it Wherefore, when I looked at it, it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth, it brought forth wild grapes. Again, we're addressing Israel's spiritual heart attitude toward the Lord. All right? And in Isaiah, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Uh, they were giving sour grapes instead of the sweet grapes that God was looking for. The olive tree. Uh, the olive tree, I think, uh, shows um, Israel's uh, religious aspect, her, her worship, okay? Her worship, her, her religion, her religion. Uh, Jeremiah 11, uh, starting in verse 16 all the way to 17. 
It says, The Lord called thy name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he hath kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. For the Lord of hosts that planted thee hath pronounced evil against thee for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger and offering incense unto Baal. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about Israel's religion, her worship toward the one true God. She's forsaken that and she's chosen to worship Baal instead. So that's dealing with her religion. That's dealing with her worship uh, toward God. Um, another passage is found in Isaiah 17, 6 through 8. He says, uh, Yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it as a shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uttermost bough, uh, four or five in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of Israel. He's talking about the remnant. God always has his remnant. And on this huge olive tree, there's only a few berries. There's only a few berries uh, worthy of, of, of harvest. Verse 7, he says, At that day shall a man look to his maker, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel, and he shall not look to the altars, the work of his hands, neither shall respect that which his fingers have made, either the groves or the images. Again, what we're dealing with is Israel's religion, Israel's worship toward the one true God. And what he's lamenting here is as he looks at, at Israel, as an olive tree he sees just a few berries just a few berries that are actually you know worshipping as they should as they should so that's the olive tree if the heart attitude is not right then the religion isn't going to be right is it if the heart attitude is not right and then one's worship is not going to be right. And that's been a perennial problem with Israel, as you read of Israel through the, through the Old Testament. That's been a perennial problem. And then we come to the fig tree. And the fig tree, I believe, uh, represents Israel as a state or as a nation. All right? As a state or a nation, like the United States of America as its own you know, country, its own nation. Um, Hosea 9.9 uh, They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Therefore he will remember their iniquity, he will visit their sins. Verse 10 I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. But they went to Bel Peor and separated themselves under that shame, and their abominations were according as they loved. So here we see God looking on Israel as a nation like a fig tree. Like a fig tree. Uh, the prophet Hosea likened the, the Israel to a fig tree, and God is lamenting uh, because they have become corrupted by the nations that surround them. Our Lord uses uh, same symbolism in regards to uh, Israel in Luke 13, 6 through 9. If you remember, we studied that. He spake also this parable. Again, here's a parable. 
A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the, the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dug it, uh, dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. So for three years Jesus was ministering to Israel and he was showing Israel proofs of who he was. But they didn't receive him, did they? They rejected. They rejected Jesus. They rejected Jesus. And that tree was cut down. That tree was cut down. In Matthew 21, 9, Jesus comes upon the fruitless fig tree. And what does he say? He curses it and he says, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And the fig tree withered away. Again, he's speaking about the nation of Israel. Collectively as a, as a people. Collectively as a people. You know, when you consider these, so the fig tree represents Israel's national privileges. And when they rejected Jesus and they crucified him, they rejected their Messiah, their king, and that tree was cut down and when? 70 AD, right? When the Rome came and took Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. So 70 AD, that fig tree was cut down. And for the next 1,878 years, the nation of Israel did not exist. The fig tree was cut down. The fig tree was cut down. Now, when you consider all of these trees in relation to Israel, uh, you have to understand that there's a certain, (laughs) no pun intended, cross-pollinization between this symbolism. Okay, Um, at times the vine is seen with the fig tree and the fig tree is seen with the olive tree and the olive tree is seen with the vine. Rarely do you see all three of these characteristics at work in Israel. Maybe in the days of Joshua when they were taking the land back. Uh, Maybe in the days of David when he became king. Certainly in the days of Solomon, in those early days of Solomon, all three of these elements were, were working as they should have been. Maybe briefly in the time of Hezekiah when there was revival or in the time of Josiah when there was a revival. But for the most part, as far as Israel is concerned, all three of these elements of Israel weren't in sync weren't in sync. And that's been a problem with Israel. That's been a problem with Israel. God himself called Israel a hard-headed, stiff-necked people. Kind of like some folks I know. You see, when all of this is going to click is when Israel steps into the millennial kingdom and Christ is sitting on the throne. Because God has great plans for Israel and that is important for you to remember. God has great plans for Israel. Exodus 19.5 
Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Isaiah 61, 6. But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles. And in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. I wrote up here Jeremiah 31, 31. You see, there's coming a day when Israel comes into the millennial kingdom with Christ on the throne. God is going to establish a new covenant with his people Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 31 all the way to 34, he says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke or break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord for they all shall know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. When they enter into the Millennial kingdom with Christ on the throne, this will be kicked in, um, what's the word I'm looking for, permanently. Their hearts will be changed. God will give them a new heart. He'll take that stony, stiff neck heart out and he'll give them a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh. This hasn't happened yet. This hasn't happened yet. But because God said it would happen, what does that mean? It will happen. It will happen. Now, I've gone to this level of study for a reason. Not simply to impress you and have you go ooh and awe about this. There you go. But there's, this is important to understand. Because what's going on is that there's a trend in many churches today. Uh, churches at one time who believe this are no longer believing this. There's a trend in, in, in churches today that write Israel out of their prophetic theology altogether. Let me quote some things. Uh, you may hear this on the radio or the television or in the popular books written by some of these folks. Uh, This has been taught. The idea that the establishment of statehood for Israel in 1948 is the fulfillment of prophecy and that it singles the end times is without merit. Taught in churches. Um, The physical Israelites are no longer a special chosen people to God at the exclusion of others as once was the case so God's no longer or Israel's no longer God's chosen people 
Um, the establishment of Israel as a state in the land of Palestine in 1948 is not a fulfillment of prophecies that speak of a return of the Israelites to the promised land. It is not a signal that Jesus Christ is about to return and begin what some see as a messianic age. So they don't even believe in a millennial kingdom. And this is the one that really got me. That the Jews must return to the land of Israel as a precondition to the return of Christ is based on the theological position that the return of Christ is future to us and that the Old Testament prophecies about a return to the land are tied to such such a future return of Christ. Uh, This futuristic view as to the return of Christ is without scriptural support. The scriptures clearly show that the return of Christ was a first century event tied to the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem in the war with Rome. So they're even denying the return of Jesus Christ. Um, a fellow by the name of David Kroll. Doesn't the New Testament talk about uh, there, there are heretics in the first century that taught that? Uh, guess what? That's where I'm headed. Okay. <laughs> You're tracking. You're tracking with me. Uh, this teaching, of course, is contrary to what the Bible teaches. Right? Uh, we're living in that period of time that the Apostle Peter wrote about. He says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of this coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. Uh, Boys and girls, we're living in that time right now. We're living in that time right now. Uh, The context of what Jesus is talking about here in verse 21 is his second coming. He says in verse 27, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Uh, Was Jesus mistaken? Did he miss... What is it? Misspoke? Or misspeak? I mean, all that Jesus had taught his disciple about these things prior to his coming has yet to come to pass. What did come to pass is that little parentheses I talked about, right? We're living within that parentheses, within the church age. That is coming to pass. We're living it right now, but everything that's going to come has yet to come. Has yet to come, but it is going to come. And he says here in verse 31, uh, when he talks about the fig tree, that clearly this is a sign for us to be watching for. He says in verse 31, so likewise, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. What does it mean by nigh at hand? It's close. It's so close you can almost touch it. When you see this sign, he says the shooting forth, you know, that's like putting out leaves. We see it every springtime, don't we? When the buds start appearing on the limbs, you know, that's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about here. Um, So when you see this fig tree, um, shooting forth and beginning to shoot forth these you'll never see uh, blossoms on a fig tree 
when I lived in Athens, Greece, we had a, I had a fig tree growing right outside uh, my bedroom window, and I used to be able to reach out and pull the figs right off the tree. It's the the fig is the is the flower. It's an inverted flower. All right, so it starts pushing out its leaves in the springtime, and the leaves the leaves appear on a fig tree uh, later in spring than other trees. And then what follows spring? Summer. That's what he says right here. He says, when they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. All right? Summer. Uh, the word summer is the Greek word theros. That means to heat up. <laughs> All right? So... When you see the fig tree show up, things are going to start heating up. Things are going to start getting hot. It's going to start getting hot. Now, here's something else that it was kind of interesting to me. I don't know if it will be to you. You know, both Matthew and Mark record these same words about Jesus, uh, that Jesus said about this fig tree. But only Luke's gospel mentions these other trees also shooting forth. Also, it is only Luke's gospel that mentions the times of the Gentiles. Okay? Now, to me, I think that's significant. There are no wasted words in your Bible. There's a reason why they're there. Now, I've shown you that trees are uses symbolism for men and so forth and so on, also for nations and kingdoms, right? Could it be that these other trees, because he says right here in verse 29, and he spake to them a parable, behold the fig tree and all the trees. All right, so Luke includes some other trees. Who are these other trees? Who are these other trees? Well, I think these other trees are those nations that the book of Daniel speaks about in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and other chapters in Daniel. Those empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. I think those are the other trees. And when the beast arises out of the sea in Revelation 13... Well, let's read, I'll read this to you. In Revelation 13, 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power, and his seat and great authority those animals that was a part of this beast you read about in Daniel's prophecy you read about in Daniel's prophecy the Babylonian lion the Persian bear the Greek leopard all a part of this revised Roman empire 
Who is modern day Babylon? Iraq. Iraq. Who is modern day Persia? Iran. And even Turkey. Because Turkey was a part of that empire. Then you have Greece. That little insignificant country. It's starting to get in the news service. You know why? Because Greece and Turkey are getting ready to go to war over some territorial claims. You see what's going on here? These other trees are starting to show up. These things that Daniel uh, talked about in his prophecy are starting to come to, to the forefront. Again, since the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, this country has been a frequent trouble spot for the world. That's where the caliphate tried to take over. Like I said, we see Greece and Turkey rattling sabers. Iran with its nuclear program and wanting to wipe out Israel and threatening the U.S. And then we've got Rome. In Daniel chapter 7, when he sees this beast show up, he has a hard time describing this beast. And the reason why he has a hard time describing this beast because this beast is kind of like a shape-shifting creature. You know, it kind of changes its shape and its form and its hide. It's kind of has the ability to morph to fit the political scene. The shape that this beast now takes on is, is religious. And I don't mean to stand on anybody's toes. What I'm going to read to you is, you can check it out, it's fact. This shape-shifting creature, this, this Rome, revised Roman Empire, has taken on a religious mantle. I don't know if you read things or, or watch things, but the current Pope, his name's Francis, He's the most controversial pope they've had since almost the Middle Ages. This man is shaking things up. Shaking things up. In 2014, Pope Francis put himself directly in the middle of that collapsed Middle East peace process. And he issued an invitation to Israel and the Palestinian leaders to a prayer summit there at the Vatican never been done before he went to Bethlehem the very first pope to ever do that he flew into the west bank into the Israeli occupied territory and he proclaimed that region the state of Palestine he's meddling in politics um The UN is looking at this current global pandemic as the Great Reset. That should be troubling, guys. The Great Reset. 
And the Pope supports this. So what he says in his speech uh, that that was entitled Brothers All, he said, The COVID-19 pandemic momentarily revived the sense that we are a global community, all in the same boat where one person's problems are the problems of all. Once more, we realize that no one is saved alone. We can only be saved together. Currently, the, the Pope is actively working to help align governments and religions under a new world order. He's very active in that. Um, 1965, they uh, wrote this thing uh, that he supports. Uh, It said, uh, this is uh, according to... uh, uh, The Catholic theologians, it says, The church regards with esteem also the Muslims. They adore the one God, living and subsisting in himself, merciful and all-powerful, the creator of heaven and earth, who has spoken to men. They take pains to submit wholeheartedly to even his inscrutable decrees, just as Abraham, with whom the faith of Islam takes pleasure in linking itself, submitted to God. Though they do do not acknowledge Jesus as God, they revere him as a prophet. Essentially, what they're saying is this, that the Muslims worship the same God that the Catholics do. And if you know anything about the Muslim religion, no, they do not. And here we have the Catholic Church, oh, just because they reject Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that's not a big deal. In the last days, even denying the Lord, that bought them, is what Jude says. The current Pope also um, promotes more, more power given to international organizations such as the UN. He writes, The 21st century is witnessing a weakening of the power states, chiefly because the economic and financial sectors being transnational tend to prevail over the political. Given this, this situation, it's essential to devise stronger and more efficiently organized inter- international institutions. He goes on, when we talk about the possibility of some form of world authority regulated by law, we need not necessarily think of personal authority. Still, such authority ought to promote more effective world organizations equipped with the power to provide for for the global common good. And then he says this, Individualism does not make us more free, more equal, more fraternal. The mere sum of individual interests is not capable of generating a better world for the whole human family, nor can it save us from the many ills that are now increasingly globalized. Radical individualism is a virus that is extremely difficult to eliminate. You know what that language is? That's the language of the great harlot riding on the back of the beast. That's what that is. That's what that is. He's preaching a one-world economy, a one-world community, and all of it under the cloak of brotherhood and the human family. And people are buying into it. I don't know. No, no, he's no. That wouldn't make him the Antichrist. But he certainly has the spirit of Antichrist. 
but that wouldn't make him the Antichrist. And is he the false prophet of the Antichrist? I don't know that. I don't know that either. I don't know. I'm not going to go that far. You know, while the pandemic and the political division that's going on in our country, that's a distraction. That's a distraction to what's actually going on. It is. They want to keep your eyes away from what's actually going on. Because they don't want you to see what's going on. They don't want you to perceive the perilous days that lay ahead. They don't want you to see that. But Jesus tells his people, watch and pray. Unfortunately, the majority of Jesus' people are asleep at the wheel. Are asleep at the wheel. Jesus, Jesus clearly tells his people to watch for the sign of the fig tree. It's there. It's there. He says, when you see that fig tree show up, know that summer is nigh. Things are going to get heated. He says here in verse 31, So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Now, according to what I quoted, you know, there are many who are teaching that that generation was the generation that lived in 70 A.D. All right? That's what they teach. That's what they're, that's what they're teaching in, in, in many uh, Bible colleges and seminaries, that that generation that Jesus refers to was that generation in 70 A.D. But in lieu of the context of, of what we're seeing here in the subject matter that our Lord is speaking about, in regards to his literal second coming, something else that they are denying, in lieu of his second coming, the generation that I believe that Jesus is talking about is a generation that sees that fig tree show up. Hmm. Like you and me? For 1,878 years, Israel had no homeland. They were vagabonds. They were wandering. You've heard the phrase, wandering Jew. That's what they were. Uh, Wherever they would settle, they were not wanted. In fact, it it was the uh, states under control of, of Roman Catholicism that invented the Jewish ghettos. That whenever a population of Jews came into their city-states, they segregated them into these ghettos. Because they didn't want anything to do with them. You see, that's not where Israel's roots are, is it? It's not in Europe. It's in Israel. It's in that land that God had promised to Abraham. Again, something that... Your church teachers and your Bible college professors are telling us that no, it doesn't belong to Israel. But it does. It does. 
May 14, 1948, I've already talked about this. David Ben-Gurion, the head of the Jewish agency, proclaimed the establishment of the state of Israel. And Harry S. Truman got it right when he recognized the state that same day. May 14, 1948, the fig tree shows up. You know, Luke 3, 9, we, we looked at this way, way back. What was it, about five, six years ago? Seems that long. Ten? Ten? Okay, Ron. Luke uh, chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, And now also the axe is laid onto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not fruit, good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Well, that's what happened to Israel in 70 A.D. Uh, they were cast into the fire. The tree was knocked down. But notice it says that the axe is laid, like leaned against. That's what it means, leaned against the roots. Job 14.7 For there is hope of a tree if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stalk thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud and bring forth bows like a plant. This is written in the book of Job, a man that pictures Israel in the tribulation. For 1,878 years, that root waxed old in the earth, in Israel. And then the scent of water, the scent of water, it starts sprouting. Who is the water of life? Could it be we're smelling his soon coming? Have you ever been somewhere and you can smell the rain coming before it comes? Now this begs the question, how long is a generation? How many years counts as a generation? Well, it could be 30, could be 40, could be 70, could be 100. I don't have an answer for that question. If you're looking for an answer for that question, I don't have it. I don't have an answer for that question. I've read so many guys argue over this. And none of it is really, to me, to me, I'm not very bright, is solidly conclusive. The only thing I can go on is that when that fig tree shows up, I better start looking up. When that fig tree shows up, that's been laying dormant, its roots been laying dormant, in that earth for 1,878 years, all of a sudden, sprouts. I better start looking up. As I alluded to earlier, there's that teaching, and it's gaining more and more momentum among good, at one time, good, solid, Bible-believing churches. And uh, there's a theology called extreme replacement theology. You heard about that, Brian? Yeah. Yeah, well, they call it extreme. Maybe that was this guy's opinion. 
Anyway, this teaching reasons that because many of the Jews did not acknowledge Jesus Christ to be the Messiah promise, what they teach is that God has now replaced Israel with the Gentile church. That's what they're teaching. Uh, The gospel of Jesus Christ calls all nations and peoples to faith and repentance, but it leaves no room for any particular focus upon God's redemptive purpose for his ancestral people Israel. They teach that because the church is a true spiritual Israel, any peculiar focus upon the question of God's saving intention for Israel is no longer permitted. It's pretty strong language. Uh, Rather than speaking of a distinct covenant relationship between God and Israel that continues even after the coming of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel to the nations, this theology maintains that God's program for an interest in Israel has ended. This teaching has redefined the covenant between Abraham and God to apply to the church they're they're starting to claim the promises that God gave to Israel for for the church and yet three times in the book of Genesis God is very clear with Abraham that your seed is going to have this land he's also promised David that your seed is going to sit upon the throne in Israel in Jerusalem for a thousand years essentially what they're doing is they're making God a liar they're making God a promise breaker at best and I don't mean to be impolite or politically incorrect at best he's an Indian giver He's taking back what he promised. Does God do that? If God takes back what he promises, every one of us are in danger. Because who's to say he won't take back the promise of your salvation? No, God does not break his promise. He doesn't take back his promises. God is good on his word. If God is not good on his word, then what in the world, what hope do we have? But yet these bright, intelligent theologians are telling us differently. You know who I'm going to believe? Not the theologians. Not the theologians. Romans 3, 4, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. Every man a liar. God is not a liar. He will fulfill his covenant promises to his people about the land and the throne. And that fig tree is now on the scene. And Jesus himself tells me that the kingdom of God is nigh. Just around the corner. You can almost smell the rain before it comes. And then he says in verse 34, and take heed to yourselves. Now why does he say that? Why does he say that? What church age are we living in? Laodicean. 
Remember when I said a lot of Christians are going to sleep at the wheel? You see, a lot of Christians are all caught up in things that are important to them. It's all about me and my own. And they're not focused on what they should be focused on. It's almost like we've got scales over our eyes. And so he says, take heed to yourselves. He gives us a sign, a very clear sign, and he gives us an admonition, a warning. And I'll get into that warning uh, next week. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you now, Lord, for your word. And oh, praise your holy name that it can be trusted. In spite of what these bright guys try to tell us, we know that we can trust in your word. And Father in heaven, we, we see the sign by your spirit. Realign our priorities. Shake us up. Wake us up. Help us to watch and pray just as you admonished us to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.